It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 284 for March 16, 2012. This week, after two weeks of working with the Windows 8 Consumer Preview, I'll summarize the scary stuff, the hits, and the bugs. And we'll look at what happens if the start menu never does return. In short circuits, the difficult task of buying a mouse, no more Encyclopedia Britannica books, and a race to see who's dumber, the spammer or the spammy. There's a lot to like about Windows 8, but there's also a fair amount to dislike, or at least so some writers say. Microsoft has one of the most robust testing operations in the industry, but I thought the testers were missing something that seemed obvious. Not everyone will buy a tablet computer on the day Windows 8 goes on sale. But note the use, carefully, of the past tense. I had expected this to be a relatively short report, but two weeks of using Windows 8 convinced me that now is the time for a more in-depth account that covers the good features I've found, but also addresses some of the questions that are being asked about this version of Windows. There's no doubt that Windows 8 marks a radical departure for the operating system, whose interface has remained largely unchanged since Windows 95. First, this note. I corrected the previous Windows 8 written report, in which I called the Consumer Preview Alpha software, but I didn't update the podcast. So I'm adding this correction now, both to the website and to the podcast. The Consumer Preview is beta software, more or less. Microsoft chose the name Consumer Preview instead of beta to indicate that the operating system is approaching, but has not yet quite reached beta status. So, let's start with the scary stuff. Windows 8 apparently will not have a start menu for those of us who still use antiquated keyboards and mice. Although Microsoft has made some significant improvements in the way the interface works with keyboards and mice, I thought the company still hadn't really made the operating system friendly for anybody who doesn't use a tablet computer. I know that tablets are the future for many users, but not all users. There will continue to be a need for high-powered desktop systems that can be used to edit video, photos, and audio. There will continue to be a need for high-powered desktop systems that can support large databases and gigantic spreadsheets. There will continue to be a need for high-powered desktop systems that can be used to create magazines and books. This is the point that I thought Microsoft had been overlooking even with the interface improvements that have been made since the developer preview edition. The overall layout is beautiful. Typefaces have been updated. Even the installation process is pretty. If you dual boot Windows 8 with another operating system, the boot manager is surprisingly attractive. The installation process itself is simplicity defined. Unless you choose to take the long route through the installer, you'll need to answer only a few questions. If you have a Microsoft account, you can use it to log on and coordinate settings among multiple computers. When you provide Microsoft your mobile phone number, an alternate email address, and a security question, you will be able to change your password even if you happen to forget it. This is all really good stuff. But none of this matters if the interface isn't usable, and that's the danger Microsoft faces. 
or at least that is the perception that Microsoft faces, the perception that the interface won't be usable by most people who use computers today, and there's a lot of that out there. I've been using a tablet computer for a while now, and I love it. The interface is great for those who can touch the screen and drag things around and tap to start applications, but most of our notebook computers don't have a touch screen. And desktops? <laughs> I don't think so. Windows 8 now at least makes use of the scroll wheel on a mouse to show icons that are off-screen, but the scrolling initially seems to be goofy. Since the dawn of the web, it's been considered bad form to make users scroll horizontally, and that's exactly what Windows 8 forces users to do. On a tablet, that seems to make sense. But if you're using a computer that has a mouse and a keyboard, you may think this is simply wrong. Two weeks ago, that was my opinion. Now, I still think that Microsoft could and should offer users a choice. Choice one, I have a tablet, I want the full Metro interface. Choice two, I have a desktop or a notebook, and I want the standard start menu. In Windows 7, I have an overstuffed taskbar. I keep so many applications in it that I've set it up as a double deck bar. Fortunately, the desktop view in Windows 8 allows the same process. But even if I can place the 60 or so applications that I use most frequently on the taskbar, there are still hundreds of applications and utilities that I need occasionally. And here, I was going to write these words. Microsoft, you're making a terrible mistake by eliminating the start menu. However... Microsoft has provided some workarounds, and utilities already exist to replace the Start Menu, if you want it. I was going to write, the Mac has no Start Menu, but Microsoft shouldn't copy every dumb thing that Apple does. That would have been both unfair and incorrect. So the good news is that you can recover the Start Menu if you want to. Microsoft could still relent and restore the Start Menu, the orb in the lower left corner of the screen, but as of this writing, it appears that the menu is gone. I still think that's too bad. I like investigating new things, and change excites me. If it didn't, I wouldn't have been writing about technology for the past 20 years. But after less than a week, less than a week, I decided that several acceptable menu options existed under Windows 8. Not everyone is so quick to accept change, though. And even if those options exist, they may not know about them or use them. So if Microsoft continues down the path that eliminates what's become the traditional start menu, considerable blowback probably will occur, even though easy and relatively straightforward solutions exist. There are four that I have identified so far. Number one, add a faux start menu. This is all described on the TechBiter Worldwide website if you want to do it yourself. Just open the Windows 8 desktop, launch Windows Explorer, click the View tab on the toolbar, and check the box next to Hidden Items. That will display folders and files that are normally hidden from view. Then, right-click the Windows Explorer taskbar and select Toolbars, New Toolbar. Navigate from the C drive down through Program Data, Microsoft, and Windows, and there you'll find a folder called Start Menu. Select that, and you'll now have a Start Menu toolbar on the far right side of the taskbar, the right side, not the left side. To use your faux Start Menu, just click the double-headed arrow at the right of the words Start Menu. Problem solved, number one. Second, you could use Vistart, download and install the free Vistart application that restores the full Start Menu functionality. But keep in mind, it also disables the Start screen whenever it's running. Vistart will also offer to install two additional applications when you install it. I recommend refusing those offers. Option number three is the one I've adopted. Just suck it up, fix the Start screen, and get over it. 
The problem is that the start screen arrives with no more than one or two useful applications showing. So get rid of what's there and populate the start screen with applications you'll actually use. And I finally realized what I detested about the start screen is simply that it's ugly. The colors are garish. There's nothing on the screen I want to use. So the fix is relatively easy. Remove the tiles you don't want, add tiles you do want, and break them up into logical groups. In other words, just customize Windows 8 the way you would customize any other version of Windows. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see before and after views of the start screen. And I said I also keep a lot of programs pinned to a double-deck taskbar in Windows 7. I'll continue that process in Windows 8, and starting most applications will require just a single extra click to get to the desktop. In other words, no big deal. I may miss the start menu for a while, but it appears that my first impression that the start menu's absence was a disaster was simply wrong, and that Microsoft largely got this right. Oh, and there's a fourth option. Just use it. The start screen isn't really a disaster. If you want to use Microsoft Word, press the Win key, type WOR, and press Enter. Word will open, assuming it's installed, of course. Or to use a free screen capture program called Screen Captor, Win key, SC, Enter. How difficult is that? Combine this with pinning applications to the start bar, and it seems you'll have a highly workable solution. Tile positioning seemed a bit iffy at first. You can grab a tile, or if you want to call it an icon, an icon, and you can move it. Trouble is that when you do that, other tiles will move around in what seems to be a nearly random order. If I put a tile in the second position of the third row, that's probably where I want it. If I move another tile to the fourth row, I'd like the tiles that I've already placed to stay put. That may not happen. The movement isn't entirely random, though, and it can be controlled reasonably well once you understand what's happening. Each column must be the width of two small tiles or one large tile, and the tiles fill in from top to bottom. Oh, and speaking of sizes, there are only two sizes for tiles, huge and absurd. It'd be nice to be able to create smaller tiles so that more could be placed on the screen. Maybe Microsoft will do that. Windows 8 does have some truly great features. The interface, as I've mentioned a time or two, is simply beautiful. And there's pinball. It's the most incredible computer simulation of a pinball game I've ever seen. And if you have a second monitor, you can display different images on the second monitor. By default, both monitors have taskbars, and it's possible to designate either one as the primary. I think I'm going to like that. If you use Internet Explorer, you may be surprised to find the address bar is at the bottom of the screen. I rarely use IE, but after working with it for a while, I'm beginning to like having the address bar at the bottom. The address bar disappears when you don't need it. Unfortunately, right now it doesn't always come back when you do want it. I would classify that as a bug. Now, before you panic, this address bar at the bottom applies only to IE and only in the Metro interface. If you open IE from the desktop, the address bar is right back at the top. And besides that, it appears that you can move the Metro address bar back to the top if you want to. But give it a try at the bottom before you do. Here's a word of warning. Do not upgrade. If you're thinking about giving Windows 8 a try, don't upgrade a Windows 7 machine. Don't upgrade a Windows 8 developer preview machine. Use either a dual boot system or create a virtual machine. If you do a dual boot system, be sure to format the partition you'll be using for the Windows 8 consumer preview. Microsoft calls the current version a consumer preview, but it's really just an early beta version. Trying to upgrade an existing installation 
will create a lot of heat, but probably not a lot of light. When Windows 8 is released later this year, Microsoft will undoubtedly provide an upgrade path for those who have computers that are running Windows 7, but even then, there probably will be no direct path for users of any of the preview or beta versions. One pleasant surprise I found in Windows 8 is that PowerShell, which has been available on Windows computers for years, but had been hidden on the Accessories tab of the Start menu, is now a little further up field. Windows 8 actually creates a Metro Start button for it. It's not shown by default, and you need to pin it to the Start screen if you want it to be there. PowerShell is the follow-on to the Command Processor, or CMD, and CMD is what replaced the old DOS Command Prompt. If you occasionally need to use CMD, it's still there, but I would suggest that you try PowerShell instead. PowerShell uses a completely different syntax that requires a lot more typing than under Command or DOS. Instead of typing DIR for a directory listing, for example, PowerShell's native command is get-child-item. Now that may seem like a big step backward, but it's not. It's not because the syntax makes it possible to write scripts that are relatively easy to read, and really, you don't have to type get child item for a directory listing. Instead, you can use the abbreviation GCI, or if you want, just type the old DOS command term DIR, or use the Linux Unix command LS. Where equivalent commands exist, PowerShell generally understands them all. The power in PowerShell comes from its integration with Net Framework and its ability to access the Microsoft Component Object Module, or COM, along with the Windows Management Instrumentation, or WMI. COM provides inter-process communication between running applications, and WMI enables local and remote administration of Windows systems from the command line. This is definitely a plus. But I mentioned bugs. Keep in mind this is beta software or pre-beta, actually, and it's guaranteed to have some significant bugs. Despite the fact that some correspondents have told me they can find no bugs in Windows 8, I offer the following as a very small sample of the depth and breadth of problems that Microsoft software engineers still have ahead of them. Can Metro apps be dragged to another screen if you have a multi-screen system? It appears not. During the installation, if you enter the wrong activation code and it is refused, Entering the right activation code will not work until you restart the computer. I observed this on a 32-bit laptop system. When I installed the Windows 8 Consumer Preview over the Windows 8 Developer Preview, the computer crashed regularly after about 20 minutes. The situation improved following a clean installation, but I still see the problem on a 64-bit system. Windows 7 works flawlessly on the same hardware, so one has to assume it's a Windows 8 bug. I did a clean installation on a 32-bit system and have thus far not seen the problem there. Others have reported similar problems, but generally they haven't noted whether the installation was clean or an update. You may be surprised that I don't consider this to be a bug. The underlying problem involves device drivers that seem to become confused when the system becomes busy. Software and hardware will eventually catch up with each other. Some people have reported that signing out takes a long time and then fails, requiring a forced shutdown. I have not seen this one, but if it happens, and I presume it does since it's been reported, I would classify it as a bug. Firefox images sometimes display in a scrambled state, and this of course could be a Mozilla bug. Similar graphics problems have been reported for Chrome, and I can confirm this. The bugs could well be nothing more than an incompatibility between the browsers and the Windows 8 kernel. They will certainly be fixed by the time Windows ships. 
Attempts to install Office 2010 with a valid activation code report the activation code is invalid. I'm a Microsoft TechNet subscriber. I have available eight activation codes, some of which have never been used. All of the codes are refused. Is this a bug? I gave up and installed LibreOffice. Unlike applications such as Photoshop and InDesign, Microsoft's Office Suite rarely brings anything to the table that I can't replace with LibreOffice, especially in a testing environment. I have seen reports that some Metro apps, weather and finance for example, can't connect on some wired systems and erroneously show a Wi-Fi icon when there is no Wi-Fi. According to those who reported the problems, the apps worked in the developer preview. I haven't observed that one. If you press shift and right-click a pinned item on the taskbar to create a shortcut, no shortcut is created. Or if it is created, it's stored in some unknown location. Do you think this should be classified as a bug? Yeah, I do. The mail applet is largely non-functional and does not offer options for standard POP3 and IMAP accounts. Now, this isn't really a bug, it's just an indication that more development is needed. Many international users have reported that localization is broken and that many of their applications are in the wrong language. This also isn't a bug. Again, it's simply an indication that more development work is needed. Windows 8 may not be able to accept passwords longer than 10 characters. I've seen this reported by several users, but I have not confirmed it. If so, wow, really? That would be a big-time bug. Those who have upgraded from Windows 7 on a test computer report many problems with applications installed under the previous OS and upgraded under 8. That's not surprising. I don't consider it a bug. Development will fix it by the time they ship a real version that is intended to be installed over a previous version. And the consumer preview occasionally drops my Wi-Fi connection. The developer preview never did this. Windows 7 on the same computer never does. I see it only on the 64-bit system, not the 32-bit system. So, for those who feel the operating system has no bugs, I can only say that as of a week ago, the public bug reporting forum had 50 pages of bug reports that had no response, and 41 pages of bug reports that had an answer of some sort. Each of those pages contains approximately 20 bug reports, so you do the math. After all that, a quick tip of the hat for some other assorted cool stuff. TechBiter Worldwide uses a lot of screenshots, and I create them with Snagit. That's an application that I would not consider being without. But, for occasional screenshots, you'll probably find the built-in function of Windows 8 works well. And no, I don't mean the lame snipping tool, and no, I don't mean using print screen and then dumping the buffer into paint. Under Windows 8, all you have to do is press the Windows key and then the print screen key. A full screen capture will be deposited in your pictures directory. Hover your mouse over the top right or bottom right corner of the screen and what's called a charms bar will appear. This gives you quick, easy access to search, sharing, and settings. Do the same on the left side of the screen and you'll see the switch list. This allows you to jump to any other running application. Alt-Tab will still work, of course, if you want to cycle through all open applications. If you have multiple computers and you use a Microsoft login, a Hotmail account, for example, your computers will all synchronize several bits of useful information. In defining these shared systems, you'll have to prove to the synchronizer that you should have access to all the computers. Doing this will share your preferred themes, settings, languages, and app settings across various Windows 8 computers. And if you plan to use Microsoft's SkyDrive to store files, you'll need a Microsoft login for that, too. In addition to standard passwords, Windows 8 has visual passwords. You'll find a similar feature on Android devices. When you start the computer, your login screen can display a picture. 
The password that logs you in can be a series of gestures, circles, straight lines, and taps on the picture. The picture might be your favorite cat, for example. Draw a circle around the left ear, tap the right ear, and then draw a line from the nose to the tip of the tail, and you're logged on. Okay, this works only on tablets, but it's still a very cool feature. Tech Republic's March 6th issue carried a report on Windows 8 and corporate chief information officers. CIOs are generally cautious folks, unlikely to adopt new technology until they are certain that it's reasonably stable and that it will bring useful capabilities to their companies. Tech Republic maintains what it calls a CIO jury, and the first 12 members to respond when a question is posted serve on the jury, so this is not a representative sampling of industry. The account provides some insight into the challenges Microsoft needs to address if it intends to sell Windows 8 to corporations, and it does. The current consensus on Windows 8 is W8, or wait. Tech Republic put it this way, when asked, do the new features in Windows 8 provide enough value to make it an attractive option for your organization, Tech Republic's CIO jury of tech decision makers voted no by a margin of 9 to 3. While intrigued by a number of the new features, many IT chiefs are, for now, apparently still looking for the features that make it essential for them to get ready to upgrade. The consensus also seemed to indicate that the CIOs feel it's too early in the product development cycle to make a decision. So far, Microsoft has released only the developer preview aimed at developers and the consumer preview, which provides a more complete look at how the new operating system will work. So W8 is the appropriate stance at this time. It's still unclear whether the new version will be Windows 7 re-engineered or Windows Vista re-engineered. Bob, Windows Millennium Edition, or ME, and Windows Vista are prime examples of how Microsoft can occasionally run off the rails. Windows 98, Windows XP, and Windows 7 are great examples of what the company can do when it gets everything right. Which class Windows 8 will fall into won't be known for a while. My expectation is that Microsoft will squish the worst bugs within the next few months and that Windows 8 will be a good operating system. I'm reluctant to say that for certain, though, because the last Microsoft operating system that I tried too hard to like was Vista. And we all know how that worked out. So is there a bottom line yet? In a word, no. I was ready to rail against the loss of the start menu, and I'm sure you'll hear a lot about that between now and the time Windows 8 reaches gold code status. There is one thing that we should all know about Microsoft, though, and that is that the company extensively tests interface changes. And what may seem initially to be a radical change that's stupid often turns out to be just right. For more information, visit the Windows 8 Consumer Preview website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And remember, don't deploy the Preview Edition on any production computer. In short circuits... My wired mouse had seen better days, so I decided to buy a new one. Microsoft Explorer mouse seemed a good choice. Unfortunately, it wasn't. The mouse arrived promptly from Newegg and I installed it. Then I noticed that the scroll wheel didn't work right. For about half the revolution it was fine, and then it stuck. This made scrolling a little difficult. I reported the problem to Newegg and they sent a new mouse. I returned the old one. The scroll wheel on the new mouse worked fine, but the scroll function didn't. 
In some applications, no amount of scrolling had any effect. In others, scrolling was normal. And in still others, it worked, but only if I turned the wheel furiously. And I reassigned the mouse to a computer where I didn't really need the scroll function and put an older Microsoft Natural Wireless Laser Mouse in service. Besides being heavy and clunky, its scroll function didn't work very well either. So I went to Micro Center and found yet another Microsoft Wireless Mouse. I think it had been on the shelf for a while because when I opened the box, I found that I could suspend the mouse in midair by touching the Nod Skid thumb groove. It just stuck there on my thumb. Overnight, the thumb groove became a little less sticky, but the software wasn't certified for Windows 7, and it didn't work right. So, it went back to Micro Center, and the Microsoft Natural Wireless Laser Mouse went back into service. It was still heavy, still clunky, and the scroll feature still didn't work. Next, I ordered a Logitech M510 wireless mouse from Newegg. It arrived, I installed it, and... Success! Everything works just the way it's supposed to. You wouldn't think that replacing a mouse would be a month-long process. Remember when Encyclopedia Britannica salespeople made house calls and virtually shamed people into buying expensive sets of books to benefit their children? Well, those people haven't been around for a long time, and now even the print version of what's considered to be the world's best encyclopedia won't be around either. After all, how important is a 100-pound-plus 32-volume set of books that many people consider to be out of date before they're even published? It's been at least a decade since I recommended that Encyclopedia Britannica stop publishing books. For encyclopedias, books add costs. The publisher must print the books, store them, and ship them. Buyers would pay $1,400 for the set with basic bindings. Get rid of the books, and you get rid of some of the largest costs. You still have to pay people to write the articles, of course, but there is no longer a need to pay for printing, warehousing, and shipping. Or do you have to pay someone to write the articles? Wikipedia seems to be doing quite well with volunteer writers and editors. Much of what's in the Encyclopedia Britannica isn't out of date, of course. Even the 1960s version we have at home. The history of ancient Greece and Rome, for example, didn't change much in the intervening 50 years. In fact, the majority of what's in the 1960s books is still current today. Encyclopedia Britannica sold 120,000 sets of books in the United States in 1990. That was their best year. But sales have now dropped to about 8,000 sets per year, and most of those probably went to libraries. The encyclopedia will live on in digital versions, Encyclopedia Britannica President George Cowes told the New York Times some people will feel sad about it and nostalgic, but we have a better tool now. The website is continuously updated, it's much more expansive, and it has multimedia. Encyclopedia Britannica offers annual subscriptions to its website for $70, and about half a million families subscribe. Despite the much higher cost, the print version of the encyclopedia brought in only about 1% of the company's revenues, as compared to about 15% for the online service. Educational products account for the other 84%.
If you received a message from American Express that was sent to an address American Express didn't have for you, and also included several of your coworkers and a variety of list addresses, would you consider it to be genuine? Apparently, some people probably would. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you will see a message that I received. It came to my business address, which is not the address I use for American Express. And that was only one reason that I knew immediately it was a fraud. It was also sent to the all list at the office, to several team addresses, and to the addresses of people who hadn't worked there for years. What was the subject of this message? Thanks for updating your email address, it said. And then it listed a Hotmail.com address that clearly isn't mine. If the new address is not correct, the message said, or if you did not request the change, I should click a link. Warning bells, warning bells. The message should say that I need to click the link to confirm the change, and that if I didn't request the change, I should simply do nothing, and the change will be discarded. That's the way any legitimate business works. You must confirm the change, not reject the change. Clicking the email address would have taken me to a poisoned page. The click here link went to another poisoned page. And there was a link that supposedly went to American Express that yielded yet another poisoned page. In an attempt to snare the cautious but uninformed, there were four more links at the bottom of the page to report phishing and other assorted things. Each of those led to yet another poisoned address. You might think that the perpetrators of this hoax are stupid, and they are, because they could have easily used the blind copy feature instead of placing all the addresses in the two-line. But what does this say about the people who received the message and clicked one of the links? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.